Most of you have probably at some point or another taken classes and you've studied hard and you've written your exams and tests and quizzes. And eventually, if you, if you do what you're told, you'll get a grade, you'll, you'll graduate, you'll get a, a credit, a diploma. The problem is sometimes we think of education as a limited, time-limited process. It starts on a particular date, let's say in September when school starts, and it ends in April or ends in June, and then we say our education is done because we graduated, we got the credit. Learning, however, should be a lifelong process for every Christian, regardless of your vocation, regardless of your longevity with Christ, we should all desire to continue to learn. So if, you're, if you work in a factory, if you're a tradesman, if you are a physician, if you're a pastor, whatever the Lord has called you to do, you should always be in the continuing process, the continual process of learning and growing because we all have blanks that need to be filled in. We all have deficits. And if we want to serve as unto the Lord, we want to be continual learners, especially when it comes to the word of God. None of us here has complete and utter knowledge of God's word. We're always learning. We're always growing. Even as a pastor, I I would never say, I know everything. I know everything there is to know about the Bible. In fact, sometimes I feel that the more I study it, the less I know. It's revealed to me that there's many things I, I need to continue to consider. So regardless of whether you are a Christian, a Christian teacher, you need to continue to learn and to grow, to fill in some of those blanks. And if you have come to church today and you're not yet a Christian, but you're entertaining the Christian faith, or someone invited you here and you're curious about the Christian faith, there are some pretty significant blanks we want to help to fill in for you today as well. Now, we do live in 2023, and if we were to compare the circumstances of our day and age to the first century church, to those early Christians, especially in the the, the 40s, the 50s AD, we have a massive advantage, a massive advantage over first century Christians in that we now have the entire canonized word of God in our hands to study and to meditate upon. When we read the Bible, sometimes we forget about the fact that these early Christians did not yet have a canonized Bible. And so we assume that they know what we know. We assume that when Paul and Barnabas and others were preaching and teaching that they had Bibles, the 66 books in their hands, but they did not yet. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament available to them. Some of the New Testament books were being written. So it's important for us when we're studying the book of Acts, for example, to remember that they didn't yet know everything that we know because God had not yet finished revealing his special revelation to himself. And so as we move through the book of Acts and we see Paul dialoguing with various Christians or other Christian leaders preaching sermons, sometimes you stumble across believers that don't even know some of the basic things that you and I know. They're believers, they're followers of Christ. But we're gonna see that some today didn't even, hadn't even heard about Pentecost yet or didn't even know about Trinitarian baptism. They just had not heard of it. They were followers of Christ, but they had 
major blanks that they needed to fill in in their own theology. So more knowledgeable believers would come alongside them and help them to fill in the blanks. Again, we now have the whole Bible, but I think we would all admit that there's still some blanks perhaps to fill in in our own hearts and minds as well. I want to take you to Acts chapter 18. So our text is going to be Acts 18, beginning with verse 24. And we're going to make our way right through to chapter 19, verse 10. And as you see three different situations arise in the text where people needed blanks filled in, they, they, they lacked in the area of knowledge. I want to challenge you to be thinking to yourself, are there blanks I need to fill in in my own life? Maybe you're a Christian teacher. Are you a Christian teacher who is committed to ongoing learning? The best teachers are always what? Students, continual students. If you're a Christian, are you continuing to learn? If you're an unbeliever, are you willing to learn some new things about God? Or have, is it possible that there are folks here that have made the catastrophic mistake of stubbornly refusing to learn more about God's word and to heed what God has written? So the point is, is that there's a lesson for each of us. There's a lesson for me as a teacher. There's a lesson for you as listeners. There's a lesson for you if you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to start with the teachers, however. So Christian teachers need to be teachable. Christian teachers need to be teachable people. In verse 24, the Bible says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which, will, which you will know is in northern Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So far, so good. Apollos was well-spoken. He could put his words together. He was competent in the scriptures, which in this context refers refers to the Hebrew Bible, because again, the New Testament had not yet been written. He was well-taught, so the information at his disposal, he was more or less familiar with it. He was also passionate, which is kind of helpful if you're going to be a teacher and you're preaching the truth, but you're monotone. You look like you're about ready to fall asleep yourself. Chances are it's not going to be super helpful for your listeners. So he was passionate and he was accurate. But check this out. Being well-taught doesn't mean you've been fully taught. Being well-taught doesn't mean you're necessarily fully taught. Because the text goes on to tell us, though he knew only the baptism of John, meaning the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a baptism of repentance, the Bible tells us. He never heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He never heard of the triune, the baptism of, that Jesus spoke of in the Great Commission being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, that Christian couple we met earlier in the chapter, heard him, they took him aside, key point, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They didn't have to correct bad theology. He was well taught, but he wasn't fully taught. They had to add to his theology. They had to fill in some of the blanks. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers 
encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So he receives the information, obviously, and he's back at it. He's out preaching and teaching. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, meaning the Messiah, was Jesus. So Apollos is a great example of a teacher who was useful to God, but still had some growing to do. He had had no exposure to what we have read in the book of Acts. He hadn't heard about what happened in what we call Acts 2, Pentecost. Hadn't heard about it. He had a limited knowledge of the word of God, sufficient to be useful to God, but not yet sufficient to say he was fully versed in the things of God. He hadn't heard about Pentecost and he had not heard about Trinitarian baptism. False teachers are of a different sort. False teachers are those who would take what God has said and twist it. So he's not a false teacher. He just has some blanks that need to be filled in. Because he's not a false teacher, there was no no need to confront him. So Priscilla and Aquila instead take him aside. It's not public, it's private. They take him aside out of the synagogue, out of the crowd. It's not public rebuke. Hey man, you haven't heard about Pentecost? Shame on you. It wasn't that. It was, hey, we want to tell you a little bit more about what God has accomplished. So they take him aside and they instruct him in private. So I think there's a lesson in this text about the difference. We need to make a difference. We need to differentiate in our mind between someone who's incompletely taught and someone who's teaching falsehood. You're talking to people and they're saying things that maybe are inadequate. You're like, hey, have you heard about? You treat a person like that differently, a new believer, a believer that maybe has not had the kind of teaching that you've had. You teach that kind of, you treat that kind of a person differently than you treat someone who's spouting falsehood, spouting heresy. Now, we have a completed canon. Once again, we talk about canonization. Canonization, by the way, if you haven't heard that word, took place in the second and third century. And it was the process, not of determining, but of affirming which books were in fact the word of God based upon things like the Jesus commission the writer of that book? Did the other apostles and prophets affirm the veracity of that book? Are they quoting from the Old Testament? Are they consistent in doctrine? So we now have what we call a canonized word of God, the canon of scripture, and we have an advantage. Yet even so, we should all be willing to be taught more accurately. It's the language of the text, more accurately. Because the day you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not like God takes a big old spiritual USB and plugs it into the side of your head and downloads everything you need to know about Christianity. You start off with a basic knowledge. I'm a sinner. Christ is a savior. I need to repent of my sins and put my faith in Jesus Christ. That may be all you know. That qualifies you for Christian baptism. But then you start to fill in the blanks. You start to understand biblical history, biblical prophecy, end times theology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of sin, a fuller understanding of how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, on and on and on and on, Christian ethics. And so we should all be willing to be taught more accurately. And I have a special appreciation 
for those of you that are seasoned Christians, but who are always willing to continue to be fine-tuned in your knowledge of the word of God. There's no, no place for arrogance, for presumption. Nobody should ever say, I know everything. We should all be willing to grow in our understanding of the word of God. Because if you're a continual learner of the word of God, you will continue to encounter spiritual blessings in your own life and be able to pass those on to others as well. Now, some of you who are keenly familiar with the word of God in terms of roles and complementarianism and responsibilities and what men can do in the church and what women can do in the church, may be thinking to yourself right now, hmm, this is an interesting text. Because here we have a Christian preacher, a male preacher, and he's taken aside by a woman and her husband and corrected in his Christian theology. And you may be thinking about passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is a, a passage of the scripture, I would say, sort of in the top 50 verses you should probably be, be familiar with, says this in verses 12 and 13. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. It doesn't say I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. But it does say I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then it goes on to say the reason for this, rather she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, this is an interesting text because clearly the fact that Paul bases that teaching upon creation order disallows us from saying, well, that, that was just a cultural thing. No, he's basing it upon creation order, that God is maintaining certain roles and distinctions, just like there's a difference between a civil governor and a citizen, uh, mom and dad and their child, a husband and wife. There's, in all areas of life, there's different roles and there's limitations to those roles. And you might be scratching your head thinking, well, what in the world was Priscilla doing? Taking Apollos aside and instructing him in the things of God. So there are a few possibilities that people have suggested in response to this question. Some have suggested that we're misunderstanding 1 Timothy chapter 2. That it's not actually prohibiting women from teaching men, but I would argue that it's pretty categorical. There's no figures of speech there. There's no poetry. I mean, it's, it's like boom, 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 boom. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It says they can't teach, and then it says it in the negative. They need to remain silent. It specifically identifies the audience that they can't teach or have authority over. It's kind of hard to play fast and loose with that text. I mean, it's as, it's as straightforward as you shall not murder. It's straightforward. So I don't think it would be accurate for us to conclude that we've misunderstood 1 Timothy chapter 2. Another explanation, however, is, or has been, that Aquila did the teaching, but they're both described together. That we don't, we don't know what, who was doing the talking. It's a husband and wife. They were mentioned previous in the text, so they're both standing there. It's a possibility. It's like, yeah, Aaron and Susie invited me over and we talked about the things of God. Okay, but who was doing the talking? So maybe it was Aquila doing the instruction, but Priscilla was mentioned by virtue of the fact that she was a prominent woman. Another explanation is that the word used in this text, explained, and in the context which involved the private discussion, 
suggests that private conversations about biblical matters are fair game between Christian men and Christian women. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul is talking about order in the church, what he's doing here is he's definitely prohibiting the public teaching of men by Christian women. But this text is different, the context is different, because Priscilla isn't publicly correcting Apollos. They take him aside and they're having a brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister conversation. So there's a difference, one could say, between teaching in public and having a conversation in the foyer. So even those that would feel uncomfortable as I would with women preaching or teaching in a Bible study, I doubt we'd be running around our foyer saying, hey, ladies, I don't want you to have any conversation with any of the guys in the church about biblical matters. So this wasn't a public act of preaching. It was an explanation that took place off to the sidelines as they conversed about biblical subjects in private, which we all do even at our small group. So when you're in a small group, we don't say, hey, by the way, when the male teacher is teaching your small group, ladies, don't say anything. Rather, women participate and discuss and dialogue and share their insights. And I think that what is going on here with Aquila and Priscilla is more along those lines. We could also add to that, and this might make some of you feel uncomfortable if you haven't thought about it, but Aquila and Priscilla weren't perfected in their knowledge either. They were also filling in the blanks. They were also learning. So even if one could argue that their actions were a violation of what Paul would later teach in 1 Timothy chapter 2, perhaps they just did not understand that broader teaching yet. It would be wrong-headed for us to assume that every prominent leader mentioned in the Bible has greater knowledge than you and I do. In fact, in theory, you and I should know more even than the Apostle Paul, than the Apostle John, than the Apostle Peter, because we have the advantage of 2,000 years of having the whole book uh, in our possession. So we, we need to maintain this prohibition even in our own church, which does not exclude women from teaching women. It does not exclude women from leading in the church, but it does exclude women from teaching men, certainly on a public level, in the gathered assembly of God's people. Well, having been instructed, Apollos goes on to become an even more competent apologist and teacher of the word of God. So the takeaway, if you're a teacher, continue to learn, continue to grow in the things of God. And then more broadly speaking, there's a message here for all believers. So all believers also must be teachable. And in the 19th chapter, beginning with verse one, the Bible says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. By the way, several years had now passed since Pentecost. <clears throat> and Paul is traveling through <clears throat> a bit of a, a back, back country area, and he meets people that are disciples. So we can assume, I believe accurately, that by calling them disciples, he means disciples of Christ, what we would call Christians. So they are disciples of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the course of conversation, he discovers a major blank spot. They hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. How many of you here have never heard about the Holy Spirit? It would be shocking if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you say, I've never heard about the Holy Spirit. If you are properly baptized, you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've been listening to our study of the book of Acts, you've heard about the Holy Spirit time and time and time again. But here were some disciples, not the original 12, but there was about 12 of them, so a significant number, who had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Well, some would argue, because they're not entering into the first century context, they're thinking, well, they must have all their Bibles. How could they not possibly know about the Holy Spirit? Again, this was, a, this was a group of disciples that did not yet have the whole Bible. They didn't have the information that you and I have. They had presumably become followers of Jesus Christ before Pentecost. So remember when Jesus was traveling around and preaching and teaching and people were following him? What did they call those people? His disciples. So they either were in that group, people that had come to faith in Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry and then had left Jerusalem before they heard the Great Commission, which talks about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or they had been led to Christ by someone who was an early disciple of Jesus Christ and who they themselves did not understand about the Holy Spirit. So the wandering around, they're followers of Christ, never heard about the Holy Spirit. Some would argue then, well, this means that the Holy Spirit is given to us after our conversion. And they're arguing that because they're not understanding the time period within which this was written. The issue with them was not a lack of Holy Spirit filling. That's not the issue. They hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. They hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit, meaning they had no knowledge of Pentecost, much like Apollos had had no knowledge of Pentecost. They must therefore have become disciples of Christ before Pentecost or through the ministry of someone who became a follower of Christ before Pentecost. So having uncovered this blank in their theology, he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So the baptism that Jesus experienced at the beginning of his ministry. And Paul said, he didn't say, well, you bad people, you're a bunch of heretics. You're not believers. No, he filled in the blank. He said, and Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So let me just comment on this. I, I, I'm not the kind of pastor, you probably have noticed this, that is uncomfortable with differences of opinion in our church. I'm, I'm very comfortable with differences of opinion on, on doctrinal distinctives or denominational distinctives. But that doesn't mean we should avoid talking about these issues. So I wanna, I wanna gently comment on what is often known as charismatic theology. I am very well versed in charismatic theology and I'm very much aware that many of you come from charismatic backgrounds or are charismatic in your own 
theology, and you are more than welcome to fully participate in the life of our church without stigma. So this is not something we divide our church over. If you've ever attended our membership classes, you'll always hear us say, we're not charismatic, but we're not anti-charismatic. We're not charismatic, but we're not anti-charismatic. We say that all the time. So there's, there's, there's room for varying views on this, but it does seem evident to me that this passage or others in Acts are not teaching. They are not teaching as some charismatics would teach. That first we're saved, and then at some later date we're baptized in water baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then at some later date, we wait for the Holy Spirit to descend upon us and baptize us with the Holy Spirit. I know there are many that believe that, but I've just never seen that in the Word of God. People are like, well, I read the book of Acts. Well, so what, what part of the book of Acts do you want me to read? Well, read Acts 2. There were people that were believers that were then baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because the Holy Spirit hadn't indwelt anybody at this point. It's a transitional period. Read, read Acts 19. These are people that were disciples but had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because they were saved or became believers before Pentecost. So there, there's a period of time. Those that were present at, in Jerusalem at Pentecost, all of them that were true believers, received the fullness of the Holy Spirit after their conversion and there's a period of time when many who had already gone out and weren't part of that had not yet heard of the Holy Spirit, so they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's also notable that in the Acts 2 event, it talks about the Holy Spirit just coming down and baptizing and dwelling his people. But here, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is administered at the hands of an apostle. Not because that's the norm. Not because that's how it's going to be after this. Not not because starting in the second century and third, or that this would continue into the second century and third, but anyone that was saved, that was a disciple of Christ, prior to, prior to the, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at baptism, would at some point, presumably in the future, receive the promised Holy Spirit. But from there forward, anyone that's saved, when you're saved in 2023, you don't wait around for the Holy Spirit. And you also are unlike them in that you don't have a lack of awareness of the Holy Spirit. Like it would be kind of weird if you said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my faith in Jesus Christ. You get into the baptismal tank. We say, we're now baptizing you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we baptize you. And then at a later date, you're like, I've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Well, you, yeah, you did. You heard about it at your baptism. So these people have been baptized, but they'd not yet heard about the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is then given to them and they are baptized in Jesus' name. Now, once they heard, once they heard, you'll notice that some people have argued, you know, you should only be, ever be baptized once. Well, it's true. You should only be ever baptized once if it's a legitimate Christian baptism. But if it's not a legitimate Christian baptism, then you should be baptized again. And here we have a bunch of individuals who were baptized by John, presumably, or one of John's disciples, who were then rebaptized in Christian baptism. So we often tell people, if you come to our church, 
and you were baptized as an infant, or you were baptized in a non-Christian church, or you were baptized in some deficient way, we want you to be re-baptized as a believer. But if you already were baptized as a believer and you just sort of want to get baptized again because you want to run the flag back up the flagpole, we would say, now we're not going to do that. So there needs to be one legitimate baptism in every believer's life. And contrary to my paedo-baptist friends, there's not a single instance in the Bible where anyone other than a professing believer is baptized. So we would require that one is a professing believer before they're baptized. Let's just kind of keep in mind some of these unique circumstances. What we read about in Acts, this is why I've said many times in this sermon series, what is being described is not necessarily being prescribed. What is being described is not necessarily being prescribed because now we have a closed canon of scripture. Now we have full access to a full theology of the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and Christian baptism. And so the situation in the first century was somewhat different uh, than, than it is today. Now, now, why does this matter? Like, okay, thanks for the theology lesson. Why does this matter? Well, it matters, even though it's not a salvation issue, it matters because we want every single Christian in this room to know that you have already been indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore you have full access to all the gifts and all the resources that the Holy Spirit wants to make available to you. So if you're one of those Christians that goes through life and you're not serving, you've been asked to serve, but you're not serving, or you're one of those Christians that is always questioning their salvation. Even though you're living obediently, even though you've trusted in Christ, you're always questioning it because you don't feel it. If you're one of those Christians that goes around, I'm not worthy, I'm not ready, I'm not equipped, the sermon for you is that is nonsense. That is nonsense. You may think that's some form of humility, you may have this notion in your mind, you know, that the humble Christian always goes around second-guessing themselves. The humble Christian never serves because, you know, that would, that would suggest arrogance. The humble Christian always chews on their fingernails and doubts their salvation because that sounds kind of humble to me. Well, that's not humility. That's actually denying the, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what that is. And that's sin. That's sin. So suppose for a, a, a moment, by, by way of illustration, that you needed to cut some wood, some two-by-fours. And you put them up in your sawhorses, and you have a plug that has electricity coming out of it. You have a nice, strong electrical cord. You have a brand-new saw. And you can take that saw, and you can cut wood all day long. you got power. You got the cord, you got the saw, you're ready to roll. But you're hyper humble. And so you rationalize, man, if someone sees me using a saw, an electrical saw, they, they, might, they might think I'm having too much fun with it. They might think I'm, I'm lazy, I'm not willing to cut my own wood with my own hand power. 
They might, they might see me accomplishing too much. So I'm just going to keep it boxed up. I'm just going to get out the old hand saw and saw away by hand because God forbid if people see me actually saving a little time or having a little fun or accomplishing a lot. So I'm just going to saw my two by fours with my, my hand saw, with my own strength, with my own energy. I'm going I'm to get the job done, but I'm going to do it with my own strength, my own power. Well, that, that's kind of like living in the pre-Pentecost age. Now you're getting things done, but it's kind of slow. And the power is more or less from within. Why would you not take advantage of an electrical saw? I mean, it works. You can get the job done. It has a power source. There's nothing arrogant about using an electrical saw because everyone knows it's not you doing the work. It's the saw. The saw gets the credit. It's not your power that you're drawing upon. It is the electrical supply company that ultimately gets the benefit. Now, on the, on the other hand, on the other hand, there are those that love to show off their saws. Look at the power I have access to. Throwing the saw up in the air. It's all about the power of a saw. Have you seen my saw? I can cut faster than you. I have more of the Holy Spirit than you. Let's put on a big show. Show off all our saws. Show off all the strength. Get our electrical testers out. My, my plug's got more power coming out of it than yours. And it's not really about building the kingdom. It's not really about accomplishing anything. It's just showing off the power that you have access to. And that's equally gross. So on one hand, we need to walk in humility and we always need to acknowledge that any power that we have access to is from God. And the tools that God has given to us to get the job done and build his kingdom are from him. We don't get the credit for it. It's all from him. But at the same time, we have resources that believers did not have under the old covenant. What in the world are you doing using a handsaw when you can use a power saw? Why would you not want to accomplish more? Why would you not want to draw upon the limitless power of the Holy Spirit? So there's a message here for all of us. If we like to show off the power that we have, let's cut it out. But if we're not doing anything for God because we don't believe that he has resourced us to build his kingdom, or we prefer to do things of our own strength and we're equally sinning and that we've been dismissive of this great gift that the Holy Spirit has given to us, we are indwelt upon the moment of our conversion. Now, minor point. There's a difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. So the indwelling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit is once for all at your conversion. The filling of the Spirit, think of a glass that's half full, maybe a, a quarter full, full. The filling of the Holy Spirit relates to your daily surrender to God. So if you're, if you're obedient to him, you're reading, you're studying, you're, you're confessing your sin, you're full of the Holy Spirit. If the next day you're blaspheming, you're lying, you're cheating, don't expect the Holy Spirit to be as operative in your life. But nevertheless, we have the power of God at our disposal and we have the tools, we have the resources. So what's our job? To participate with our great savior to build his kingdom and to do that which he's called us to. Finally, I want to speak to unbelievers. You also must be teachable. 
When Paul was doing his ministry, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, which by the way is our default, then fall into unbelief, that's the default, they continued in it. Speaking evil of the way, which is a primitive reference to Christianity, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's another example, as we've seen many times in Acts, of mixed results. Some believe and some stubbornly continue in their unbelief. It's not our job to change hearts and minds. It's not our job. It's not our job to manipulate people in the kingdom of God or try to save them with our own energy. But it is our job to preach the truth. That's our job. Could God have done it effectively by himself? Of course. But he chose us to be preachers of the word. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we have to preach. People don't get saved by osmosis. This week, one of our staff members had uh, some pictures on their phone and they wanted to transfer them to my phone. I thought you had to text them, but they just came up and did some airdrop thing and suddenly they're on my phone, right? Well, when it comes to the preaching of the word of God, it's not our job to create the message. It's not our job to just live out the faith and hope that somehow our faith is airdropped into the life of the person next to us. They have to actually hear the truth. And then we need to trust in the Holy Spirit of God to bring about the necessary change. Now, it's notable, it's notable that the gospel message is summarized as one about quote, the kingdom of God. If, if we were preaching a, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, the conversion aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a few things we would want to add, and I'll do that momentarily. But if we took the gospel and we said, if we were to summarize the gospel, if I only had three words that I could use to summarize the gospel, it wouldn't be inaccurate to say, well, it's about the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because the gospel fundamentally is about who the king is. That's really what it's about. And all the implications of that. Sometimes we emphasize Christ as savior and he is our savior. But before he was our savior, he was always our king. And the reason why you need to get saved is because he's your king. And we've been rebellious servants. So talking about the kingdom of God, it's about his rule. Who? Who is actually in charge of you? Who's your true boss? Well, there's a king, and his name is Jesus. And he's, he's in fact, the king of kings and lord of all, all lords. So there's a summary here of the gospel message. It's good to be reminded of that, that fundamental to the gospel is this presupposition that there is a king, and you're not him. There is a king. When they hear this message, the listeners, some of them at least, stubbornly, refuse to submit to what's called the way, which by the way is a, is, is a nice, is nice language because the Bible talks about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. So when you're following Jesus Christ, you are following the way. 
And no one comes to the Father except through him, the Bible says. So there's some that believe, there are some that don't believe. Paul is undeterred, just keeps preaching the gospel. If you're faithfully preaching the gospel, don't be deterred. There's going to be seasons of harvest, and there's going to be seasons where it seems like there's not a whole lot happening. You're going to have gospel conversations where people say, would you get lost? I'm sick and tired of your Bible thumping. I'm tired of you talking about faith issues. You might say, well, then I'm never going to share my faith again. Some of the prophets of old went through these kinds of emotional experiences. I believe it was Ezekiel. It could have been Jeremiah. I can't remember specifically. Who talked about throwing in the towel. But the word was shut up in his bones like a burning fire. He was weary of holding it back and he could not. But there was a period of like, I'm, I'm just going to quit. Don't quit. Be undeterred and stay the long haul in ministry. Now, if you're a believer, I want to articulate for you very clearly what we mean by the call to enter the kingdom of God. I want to start off by acknowledging this. And we all need to believe this. It's kind of hard to, to deny that every human being has a belief system. Every human being has a belief system. Some of you are more aware of your belief system. You could probably write it out, write a paper on it. You could add words to it. You could say, I'm, I'm a theist. I'm a Christian. Some of you might be like, I don't know what my belief system is, but I'm telling you, you have one. You have one. You have some sort of a code. It might not even be consistent, but you have some sort of a moral code that you live by. There's things you do, there's things you don't do, there's things you say, there's things you don't say. There's some authority that you appeal to for your own existence. Why do you expect to be treated differently than a cottontail rabbit? Some, there's some authority source that you appeal to that would say, you know, I'm a human, that, that means something. I should be treated differently than, than animals. There's some authority that you appeal to. It may be consistent, maybe inconsistent for all of the decisions that you make for why you get angry at certain behaviors and why you embrace other behaviors. There's no neutrality. There's no such thing as the, someone who's awe-spiritual. Even the atheist, the atheist, they have a God. And the God is them. Let's go by a different name. You call your God, me, myself, and I. Everybody has a moral authority. Everybody has some sort of a code, written or unwritten. There's no neutrality. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to, first of all, identify for those that have forgotten who our true authority is. And so it reintroduces us to our creator and our king, the eternal word, the living son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it reminds us of who who actually is in charge. And then the gospel reminds us of the laws of God. God's expectations for us in all areas of life. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about right and wrong and hypocrisy and adultery and lying and all these things. Reminded people of God's laws. And when we are reminded of who the king is, and then we are reminded of what God's laws are, we now have something to evaluate ourselves based upon. And the damning indictment of the word of God proclaimed through Christ is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And the wages of the sin that we have committed is death 
the Bible tells us. To be cut off from the author and giver of life. Those, that is the wage that we should aptly receive for having rebelled against God. And so no human being can say, well, I don't deserve eternal damnation. I'm a pretty good person. No, we all deserve eternal damnation. Nobody can say, well, I have the capacity to work my way into God's good books. None of us has the capacity to do that. Even if we try, we always fail. God doesn't grade on a curve. Well, at least I'm not an ax murderer. Should let me in. God grades upon the absolute perfection of the thrice holy God. And none of us measure up to that. So we're all sinners. We're all lost. We're all rightly deserving of damnation. We all are rebellious little punks. By nature, that's who we are. We don't want to bow to the king. We want to be our own little kings. So what the gospel does is it exposes us to our ultimate authority. It exposes us to God's righteousness. It exposes us to our inadequacy. And right around the time you're like, oh man, that I deserve to be eternally separated from God, we hear the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ, being rich in mercy and love, was sent by our benevolent, loving Father, God, into this world to take on human flesh and to experience all of the temptation that we experience, but to perfectly live righteously before God, to fulfill the law. And then, despite the fact that he was perfect and did not deserve death or damnation, was nailed to a Roman cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb, not as punishment for his own sins, but as punishment for all who would believe in him. Then he came out of the grave and conquered death and the grave was witnessed by over 500 people and then ascended to the right hand of God, the father. And so the, the way of becoming a Christian is not by going to church. Someone said many years ago, you probably heard it. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger. How do you become a Christian then? You need to acknowledge who your king is. You need to acknowledge that you've transgressed God's laws. You need to repent of your sins and you need to believe that the only one, the absolute only one that can forgive you of your sins is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you cry out to him for mercy. You put your faith in him. And then what God does, it's super cool. He does this divine transaction where he takes the righteousness of Christ. Just visualize this. He takes the righteousness of Christ, the merits of Christ, the holiness of Christ, and he applies them to the sinner. So the sinner now is considered a saint because the righteousness of Christ is applied to him and the unrighteousness of the sinner is paid for by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely certain that he will save you and you can be assured forevermore of your salvation in space and time. If you've never heard that before, if that's a blank I filled in for you, I'm thankful to be used by God in this way. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and you will be saved. Let's pray to that end.